Hello, hello! I'm Jamie Cool from Go to Q, and it's another episode of Actually It's Phytoplankton, the podcast series about ocean ecology and NASA's PACE mission. Thanks for tuning in once again, and hopefully, you've been sharing what you've learned so far with your friends and family. Remember to find our episode 3 resource pack at gotocurious.com and follow along while you listen. This is our third episode, and it's a really cool one. I'm thinking about how sending something into space, like PACE, is such an enormous task. There are so many people involved and an overwhelming amount of moving parts that will all eventually come together with the launch of a satellite into space. So who better to ask, how the heck do you do it, than the PACE project manager, Andre Dress, and PACE mission systems engineer, Gary Davis. Hello, lads. Hello. Hello. How you doing? Glad to be here. Yeah, it's great to be here. I hope we can uh, tell you all about the PACE mission and how excited we are about building a spacecraft that we're going to launch into space. So also joining me today is Lachlan McKenna here at GoToQ. Hi, Lachlan. Hi, everyone. Good to be back again. I'm here to help with engineering questions and science words. How cool is it to talk to NASA engineers? I'm super excited that today we get to learn about building gadgets that go into space. All right, fellows, we start every episode with the same question. Andre, I think you can go first. What did you want to be when you were 13? It's a great question. I think I always knew um, from a young age that I wanted to be involved with space. As a kid, I, I loved watching the TV show Star Trek and the movies and, and listening to Carl Sagan, the scientist, and his show, The, the Cosmos. There was just something about space that I really loved, and, and it just fascinated me. When I was a kid, I had a a little telescope and I would go out at night and stare at the stars. And somehow I just always knew that I would be involved with space in some way. And so ultimately I went to school to become an aerospace engineer and kind of kicked it all off. Cool. Awesome. Gary. <laughs> well, to be honest, when I was 13, uh, I probably wanted to be a cross between a race car driver and a rock star. Yes. Uh, but my grandfather <laughs> did fly biplanes in World War I. He actually took uh, photographs while flying over enemy lines. So um, I've always loved aircraft and, uh, and anything fast. So when I was young, I remember my folks always let me take things apart, uh, basically because they couldn't fix anything themselves. So they let me try. So I would always end up taking things apart and figuring out how they worked. And usually I'd get things back together. So I've always been uh, a tinkerer and builder. Um, so naturally, I went to engineering school where you get to learn how to design things and build things, and it just went from there. And we know you both work on the PACE mission. What are your jobs? What do they involve? Well, I'm the project manager for the PACE mission, and as the project manager, I'm responsible for the day-to-day management of, of all the activities. And so you probably wonder, what are all the activities are there? As, as a mission like PACE, there's many, many elements, and you can kind of think of it like a like a big puzzle, right? And all these pieces of the puzzle need to fit together. So there's a spacecraft and there's instruments. There's a ground system. We have a science team. We have an operations team. All these things need to kind of play together. And as the project manager, we have to manage all those. Uh, the great thing about PACE is that at the Goddard Space Flight Center, we are building uh, the spacecraft and the main instrument. And we have two other small instruments. One of them is being built at a local university at University of Maryland, and and the other one's being built in the Netherlands. Gary, can you tell us about your job? 
Yeah, sure. Uh, so my title is the mission systems engineer, and folks always wonder, you know, what what is systems engineering? Uh, it's kind of difficult to describe. the uh, The best analogy that I come to think of is is uh, you want to build some large building or or a cathedral or something, and and everyone looks at a a cathedral or a building, and you see the individual bricks and Folks can design their own bricks and every piece is important, but systems engineering is like the mortar that connects all the bricks together. And so what we do as a systems team is make sure that all the different parts of the mission and all the different elements all work together cohesively to, to form the, the final product and, and do what it's intended. So in the case of, uh, say, an automobile, folks are familiar with automobiles, uh, you might have one person designing the engine and someone else is designing the transmission, but those two items have to be attached together somehow. They have to work together. Uh, and so it, it would be the systems engineer to make sure that those two elements work together in harmony to, uh, to make sure that the vehicle operated correctly. So in, in a big picture, what I do is make sure that all the different teams of people who are building all the different parts and elements um, can work together and build their system so everything will work right. Okay, that's quite a responsibility, I would say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but uh, it, it, it is a big responsibility, uh, certainly. Uh, but what makes it doable is the, the team is so good and the people are all motivated uh, to make the mission succeed. Uh, and many of them are so experienced and they've done many missions before. So uh, it's not as daunting as you would think because our, our team is very good. So Gary, I know a satellite is quite a complex thing to build. How many pieces does PACE have and are they all made at Goddard Space Flight Center? Ooh, that is a tricky question. I don't even know the answer to how many pieces there are. Probably thousands and thousands but the way we deal with the complexity and number of pieces is we divide the job up into different elements and then different subsystems and then components and then subassemblies and then piece parts. So for example, uh, if I go back to my car analogy, uh, most cars also have thousands of parts. So you could say, well, when you're designing a car, maybe there's someone who's in charge of the braking system. And so that would be analogous to a subsystem level uh, division on a spacecraft. And then within that braking system, you might have one certain assembly, maybe the calipers that, that squeeze the brakes. So some engineer might be in charge of that caliper assembly. And then that caliper assembly might have different nuts and bolts and pieces according to it. So if if you'd imagine... Uh, a drawing of the entire spacecraft, you could take out different modules or components and break that down into other drawings and break those down into smaller drawings. And then you can find out where each part goes. Um, you, the second part of your question about do we build everything at Goddard? The answer is no. Uh, nobody, I don't think, could manufacture every single piece and every single component that we have, because many of them have been developed over decades and there's specialized teams and processes to make these things. So we buy components from all over the world and then assemble them all together at Goddard. 
And that's one of the best, most fun parts of the job is after years and years of designing and doing all the paperwork to buy all these things, we start to see them arrive at Goddard and seeing all the different pieces and then seeing them all put together into the final product. That's just really, really fun to see. So Pace is due to launch, I'm told, in 2023 from Cape Canaveral in Florida. Once it's in orbit, what is the life cycle of the spacecraft and what happens when it dies? So about two months or so prior to launch, we, we ship the observatory, which is comprised of the spacecraft, the instruments, everything down to the Cape Canaveral Air Force Station. Um, we do some testing there and ultimately we put it on top of the rocket. In this case, um, we're putting it on top of a SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket. After launch, it doesn't take much time for the satellite to, to separate. Uh, and then we deploy the solar array. And from there, you know, we get contact with the observatory with antennas on the ground and we run a bunch of tests. And you may be thinking, what do I want to do tests for, right? But these are the cool kind of tests where you turn on the instruments, you collect the data and you see how great everything is going to work. You may tweak some things uh, to make it work its best. And then we turn it over to the scientists and then they collect all the science data over the life of the mission. So hopefully the mission lasts for many, many years. We put a lot of fuel on board of it on the spacecraft to last for about 10 years. Uh, but in the end, that fuel will run out and then we'll need to do a maneuver to uh, maneuver the satellite back down to the Earth's atmosphere where it will burn up in the atmosphere and be done. But that's do not a maneuver definitely years. sounds like that's from the movies. <laughs> <laughs> It <laughs> sounds like not a real thing, like something you would only do on Fire movies. the thrusters now. <laughs> it's a real thing. <laughs> so, Gary, how do you drive a satellite once it's been put into orbit? Uh, that is a great question. Uh, there, There's two ways we, um, we spin the spacecraft around. One is uh, with spinning wheels. We have these wheels, we call them reaction wheels, on the spacecraft, and they're spinning around. And by adjusting their speed due to conservation of momentum, we can move the spacecraft around and rotate it. Uh, if we want to change the orbit, we have eight thrusters on the end of the spacecraft, and we can use those very small rocket engines to do tiny maneuvers to adjust our orbit. Uh, the orbit that we fly, we go from south to north during the daytime, and we cross the equator at about 1 p.m. local time. So if, if you want, if you're brave enough and you think you can do an easy yoga pose, this is the, uh, the pace yoga pose that I've invented. So if you go ahead and stand up and close your eyes and imagine that you're in space and imagine that you're wearing a backpack that has eight thrusters on it. So those thrusters would be on your back. Now, if you take your right arm and stick it up almost sideways, but down maybe five or 10 degrees, that's your solar array. So imagine your right arm is now nice and warm. The sun is on it, giving you electrical power. You're all happy. And now imagine the left side of your body is really cold. It's cold because that side of your body doesn't see the sun. And we use that on purpose to make that side of the spacecraft cold so we can cool our detectors down. So that's all chilly. Left side is chilly. Your right arm is nice and warm in the sun. And now if you open your eyes and you look down past your toes, you're going to see the floor of your room or maybe the carpet. And so imagine that 
is the ocean that you're flying over. And if you move your eyes from left to right, imagine you're scanning a part of the ocean below your toes. And now if you run backwards at 15,000 miles an hour, you're going to scan the whole earth in about two days. And so that that's how we fly. So that's your, your pace yoga pose. Easy. I'm going to try that out later. Thanks, Gary. <laughs> sure. Now, Andre, this is something that I've asked Lockie to explain to me quite a few times, but I still don't get it. And I'm hoping that you can shed some light. We've learned in our discussion with Jeremy and Paula that PACE is designed for remote sensing of plankton, aerosols, clouds, and ocean ecosystem. But how does the satellite actually collect data? Well, let me tell you, it's it's both very simple and also very complicated. The simple answer is it's slimmer, similar to how we see colors. Okay, you, you take a look with your eyes and this, the light coming from the sun shines off things, and we see that the light gets reflected back into our eyes of a certain color, like looking at a blue shirt or a green shirt or something like that. Or, so phytoplankton in the ocean reflect different colors also. So we really need a camera that we can put into space and look at the ocean. Now, this just isn't any normal camera. It has to be something that can stand... The, the hot temperatures, the cold temperatures, the radiation. Um, so it's specially built. But it, we point that camera down at the, the ocean. The sunlight reflects off the ocean into the instrument. And as Gary mentioned, we have these detectors that are kind of like your eyes. They can see uh, different colors and they capture that data, turn it into digitized data, and we store it on board the computer just like you would have a computer here and at your home or at work. Pace will be carrying a hyperspectral sensor called the Ocean Color Instrument. What are three cool things about this sensor we should know, Gary? Uh, yeah, OCI, the Ocean Color Instrument, it's a fantastic instrument. It's, uh, it's one of a kind, and it's, it's really going to do revolutionary stuff. Uh, three interesting facts about it, I guess. One is uh, it's a telescope, but the telescope optics spin. So it, it's tricky to describe in words, but if you can imagine a telescope spinning around and inside of that telescope, there's another mirror that's also spinning at half the rate that the telescope is spinning. And, and those different spins take the light from the ocean and send it through the rest of the optics of the instrument. And this is where the second really neat feature happens. All that light gets divided into three streams or three different pathways. One of them we'll call the blue pathway. One is red and one is shortwave infrared. And at the end of each of those three pathways, there's very, very sensitive detectors. One of them that can detect ultraviolet light through to blue light. The other one blue to red and the other one are infrared detectors. And all those different wavelengths of light, all those different colors are very accurately measured and stored on board, as Andre said. And the detectors are so sensitive that we will be able to see really, really fine color differences in the ocean. And from those color differences, what the scientists can tell us is not only, hey, there's plankton there, but they might even be able to tell which species of plankton are there by the different colors that are reflected back. 
So it's really going to open up all kinds of new science opportunities for ocean scientists to uh, learn a lot of new things that we probably can't even ask the questions now of what they're going to figure out. It's an amazing instrument. And so how do you get all that data from the spacecraft to the ground? Do you use some kind of space internet? Uh, yes, uh, it's, it's something like that. Uh... Um, but actually, if you really think about it, the spacecraft has to have a communication system. So it just speaks to the complexity of, of a, a, an observatory like PACE. It's, you have the spacecraft that has to maintain control. It has to take the pictures, but it also has to send the data down. Um, and it's really actually something very similar to what you're used to. Like if, if you get in your car or your parents' car and you, you turn it on the radio... And what do you hear? You hear music, you hear people talking. So that music and that talking is just like the data that we want to collect on the spacecraft, okay, except for we're collecting image data. The spacecraft uses an electromagnetic wave in a very similar way that cars receive data that are come, being transmitted from the radio station. We transmit it to the ground, and there's these large antennas that are located all over the Earth. And the data is transmitted down to the ground. And then once it's on the ground, it actually gets transmitted back to the scientists through something like the Internet. So it's halfway true. And if some of our listeners were thinking that they really like the sound of working for NASA, what kind of careers can they aspire to if they wanted to work on a mission like PACE? There's a lot of different people with a lot of different skill sets, different jobs the, to support a mission like PACE. So we need project managers, we need engineers, but that's just only a part of it. Um, we need scientists, we need technicians, we need people to know how to operate the satellite. We need people that can count the money and tell us how much money we have. We need schedulers, we need people that write documents, store the documents, you know, all these types of things. So it's really not just all engineering. There's all different types of people. And it's like one big family that works very hard together on the PACE mission, dedicated to, to the one thing is to getting that observatory in the space. Um, and there's really nothing more satisfying than to, to work with many years on this mission with a lot of great people um, and to get it, see it launched and to see it operating in space. That's the most satisfying thing that uh, the team could take away from it. And getting close to the end now, what do you think is the best job for the entire PACE mission and why? Ooh, uh, there, there's a lot of jobs that are probably, probably the best job. Uh, one of the best jobs is uh, the flight director. And that is the, the person who sits in the control room during the day of launch and is listening to all the the engineers and and spacecraft controllers and listening to how all their subsystems are doing in the minutes leading up to launch and then gives the final go uh, that the spacecraft is ready uh, that is very exciting uh very stressful job but but <laughs> that's the job i would want but i would want exactly the go. that so, so that is one of, one of the <laughs> yeah. most fun jobs. And and if you're lucky, the control room is is down near the launch site somewhere in Florida. So after liftoff, you can actually uh, open the door for a second and, and look out and, and see your bird fly and then go back in and, and see how the telemetry is going. Uh, so that's a great job. But I was thinking that another fantastic job on pace 
is actually the ocean scientists because I've seen some of their uh, their scientific papers and some of their presentations. And in addition to studying the the data that they get from the the Pace spacecraft, they also go out in ships and look at the plankton in the ocean and collect them and study them and and if if you look at the different types of plankton they're really beautiful there's all these really unique shapes and different species and and i'm just imagining how exciting it would be for an ocean scientist to discover a new species of something and figure out how they live and and how they you know uh interact with the rest of the of the food web and discover new things about Earth's climate and nature in general. So uh, sometimes I wish that uh, I could do part of what the ocean scientists do. It sounds really, I think it always sounded really nice when Lachlan would go to the Great Barrier Reef because they had a chef on board and the chef would catch fresh fish and then make sushi <laughs> and they just have a really nice food. I didn't tell you about picking out buckets of water at 3am <laughs> in the morning and pouring them through little vacuum funnels and tossing yeah. them into liquid nitrogen. And I get so seasick. I could never <laughs> do that as a job, but it does. It sounds nice. Andre, did you have anything to add? I mean, as Gary says, I mean, there's a lot of different jobs on a mission and a lot of, all of them are exciting, right? And, and certainly being there at the launch is, is a very exciting part of it. Um, I'd be lying to you to tell you if I said I didn't like my job, I love doing what I'm doing. Um, as the project manager, I get to lead a team of the best and the smartest team people ever. Every episode, we have an at-home activity for our listeners to complete. And this episode, we're doing Build Your Own Pace, which is a paper model of the actual Pace satellite. Folks listening at home, you can find all the printables for Build Your Own Pace in the Episode 3 resource pack at gotocurious.com. For best results, print on cardstock, use a metal ruler for folds. Now, folks, this is a NASA resource. So Andre and Gary, have either of you built one of these paper models? Yes, yes, of course. In, in fact, I made some paper models even before that official paper model was there. And they come in really useful in a lot of our meetings and situations where we're talking about, well, what if we put that on the plus minus Z side of the spacecraft? Well, where is that? Oh, yeah. We'll get the paper model out and see. Oh, and what if we want to point towards the moon? Should we twist it this way or should we twist it that way? Oh, let's get the paper model and figure it out. So they actually become very useful uh, in the engineering design phase. And every single mission I've worked on has had multiple paper models in the control room while we fly the spacecraft because there's always something that comes up and you want to know, you know, where is that thing or where's that sensor or which way should we point? And you pick up that paper model and you know what it looks like and you can pretend that the the light in the room is the sun and okay, we want to turn it this way. Okay. So the answer is absolutely yes. Got any tips or advice for our listeners on building the paper model? Yeah, uh, I, I'd say just uh, be patient. And if it doesn't come out exactly like the pictures, that's okay. You know, you can make it custom. You can make it easier for yourself to work with. Uh, Go easy on the glue. <laughs> yeah. I have to give Gary credit. Don't, don't staple your fingers. Design the model. Don't staple it. That's what I was yeah, Don't say. staple your finger. <laughs> How how many iterations <laughs> did you have, Gary? Uh, th there were a lot. I think there were three or four before the official one. 
and some of the early ones involved paper clips to you know deploy the array and stuff, and they got too complicated. So the 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 one online is definitely easier than than the first ones we made. Final important question: Star Wars or Star Trek? Definitely Star Trek. No. <laughs> so do I get to elaborate my my opinion? Yes, yes go ahead. absolutely. So uh, Andre is a big Star Trek fan. We all we all know that. And Star Trek does have Scotty, who is the uh, eponymous engineer who always uh, figures everything out at the last minute and you know gets the warp engines working again, which is great. Uh, but I'm going to vote for Star Wars because of the Millennium Falcon, because that ship, uh, you know, everyone looks at it from the outside and says, oh, that's a hunk of junk. It's ugly. You're braver than I thought for flying in that thing. But Han Solo and Chewie have customized that ship to do the best they can to make it fast and make it maneuverable and make it great for them. And they've customized it. And that's kind of what we do on our mission is we make the satellite work for us and have all the features in it that we need. And it might not be beautiful on the outside, but it gets the job done. And that's the end of episode three. Thank you so much for joining us. And a very special thank you to Andre and Gary for sharing their wisdom and Lachlan for co-hosting. Now it's time for you to get cracking on your build your own pace model and show us how it turned out on Facebook. We have two more go to curious packs to give away this episode full of science goodies. Details on how to enter are on our Facebook. And remember that packs are especially designed for you if you are in grade 7 to grade 9. Yes, your parents can enter the draw on your behalf if you don't have Facebook. Next episode, we see the return of Ivana Setinich to talk all about the science of pace. Ivana will represent the oceanography crew, and she'll be joined by everyone's favorite atmospheric expert, Amir Ibrahim. Yay! See you next episode! Actually, It's Phytoplankton is a Go to Curious production proudly supported by an advanced Queensland Engaging Science grant provided by the Queensland Government. Thank you to NASA Goddard Space Flight Centre Ocean Ecology Laboratory for collaborating with us, providing in-kind support and credited use of education and outreach resources. Special thanks to Ivana Sertinich and Lachlan McKinna who work with me behind the scenes in the writing and preparation of the series. Our theme song and all podcast music is composed by me, Jamie Cool. I also edit the series and create the supporting materials on our website, gotocurious.com, in collaboration with Ivana and Lachlan. Logos, website and social banners designed by Boone Creative. Our custom podcast t-shirts and totes are made especially for kids by Zay and B Designs.